Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We made it to another Friday somehow. Coming up, why BMI is more complicated than you might think. It was never intended to measure health. It was never intended to be used as like a diagnostic tool to decide whether someone's healthy or not. Plus, how the German language has adapted to include more than a thousand words to describe new COVID-related experiences. Germans are obsessed with precision. They want to be precise. And so this demand for precision means that their appliances are very good, their cars are usually pretty great, and also their words are extraordinarily precise. But first, it's our panel about the week that was with two excellent humans. This week, we've got Nyla Boodoo, the host of the Axios Today podcast. Nyla, hey! Hello! I'm so excited to be here. Oh my gosh, so excited to have you. And we have Lauren Chuljan, who makes podcasts at New Hampshire Public Radio. Lauren, hey! Hi, I am also extremely excited. (laughs) Yay, I'm so excited too. So it has been a heck of a week and it has not all been good news. We saw another horrendous mass shooting this week, this time in Boulder, Colorado. President Biden held his first news conference. And oddly enough, the guy who went viral for saying he found shrimp tails in his cinnamon toast crunch was canceled for abusive behavior. Turns out we really can't have nice things. On that note, we're going to shake things up a little this week and start with a sports ball story, which I think maybe has never happened in the history of Nerdette. Um, turns out there's inequities between the women's and men's NCAA tournaments. Uh, I don't know that that is remotely surprising, but there were some really interesting developments. Uh, Nyla, you brought this story to us. Do you want to set it up for us? Sure. We actually talked about this on my podcast this week, and one of the questions I asked Our sports editor was, is the reason there's so many inequities? And this is everything from like, if you've seen the social media over the weight room, like the women's NCAA tournament, the weight room is literally like a bunch of like weights, like four weights. It's it's like maybe five pairs of weights maximum. And of course, the men's is like a full gym, Mm -hmm. like the type of COVID tests that the players are getting Mm. are not equitable. You could talk about the marketing March Madness. Even like their swag bags were not equal. <laughs> Everything. And the the excuse that you always hear is that women's sports doesn't make as much money as men's sports, mm-hmm. which is why I was horrified to read Sally Jenkins' story in the Washington Post yesterday. And she quotes one of the lawyers that's involved in lawsuits against the NCAA saying that women's Division I basketball generated almost a billion dollars in revenue in 2018 to 2019. Almost a billion dollars. So first of all, also let's also think about the fact that money is not supposed to be the most important thing with college athletes. They're supposed to be educated first. Money is not supposed to matter. Hmm, What do you think, Lauren? I mean, are you remotely surprised? Well, no. I mean, I think like it's 
just blatant institutional sexism, right? I mean, that's what's so horrifying is like, to Nyla's great point, like you can knock down the numbers question pretty quickly. In the same Sally Jenkins article, which is fire, if anyone hasn't read it, it is, she's just like full of anger, which is, it's brilliant. You know, I mean, like they, they get, the, the women get millions of viewers on the championship games, you know, like they're comparable, the numbers that they get that are viewers are like, they're comparable to Wimbledon men's final. Like they're comparable to big time baseball game. Like it's not like the people aren't caring about women's sports. It's just that like, this is just ingrained and it's so awful. And one thing that I, that really highlighted this for me was I was listening to morning edition this week and they had another like killer female Mm -hmm. sports columnist, Christine Brennan on And she was just like, think about like when your family talks about filling out their bracket, it's Mm -hmm. bracket singular. It's always singular. And like, that's so true. And the thing is, um, there are not singular brackets. There are brackets. There's men's basketball and women's basketball. But just like culturally, we as a society all just say bracket because we just defer that it's men's basketball. And that's just the stuff that is like why my answer is no. It's unfortunately not surprising. It's so sad. Yeah. The other thing she said in that morning edition story was that, you know, we say basketball and then we say women's basketball and you just infer that it's men's basketball because that's what basketball is unless it's women's basketball, which is like, you know, until we start changing some of those terminologies, of course, it's going to be an equal, right? Right. And I will raise my hand and say I am guilty of this because I filled out a men's bracket and not a women's bracket. Oh, I'm sure I'm guilty of it too, which is why, you know, it's very much like an institutional thing. And it's so, it's just so sad to me that we are all victim and also all contributor to it, you know? Yeah. So um, another really interesting story from this week had to do with the good old postal service. Uh, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy unveiled his 10-year strategic plan for USPS on Tuesday. I think it could be pretty generously described as not ambitious, As it currently stands, the plan will include lengthening delivery times for first-class mail and cutting store hours at USPS stores and raising prices. Um, The news comes after months of negative coverage, largely because of increased demand and huge delivery delays. First, I'm curious, would both of you agree that you have, like, relied on the post office more over the past year than you would have previously? Oh, a hundred and thousand percent. Yeah, I was going to go with a thousand percent. Like like a a lot of percent. I mean, I'm in a situation where I moved to a new house, also the pandemic. Um, I'm having a baby. Like, so so things are needing to come to my house and they are not (laughs) arriving. Mm. And, you know, I have had to panic order a bassinet myself because I was just like, at least the baby will sleep somewhere, you know, because, you know, chairs, cribs, all those things that you think, will be there when the baby, they're not coming. No, they're not coming until God only knows when. But at the same time, I mean, the problem that the post office has is that we all sent less mail for many, many years because we have the internet. So, Mm -hmm. you know, their finances are in bad shape in part because we all kind of stopped using it. Because we clicked the paperless billing box. Exactly. Which like is good for the earth. But like, you know, we, we just... I don't know. So like, it's like this weird kind of karmic feeling sometimes when I'm like, yeah, the crib's not arriving, but like, I probably could have not done a paperless post for some of those. You know what I mean? Um, And if you look at their projections, like their financial situation in 10 years, it is, it is deeply dire. Yeah. I also want to say the whole idea of delivery times being delayed is also, I think, a sign of our whole infrastructure in our country for ordering things because Mm -hmm. 
the pandemic really messed up all of those logistical systems, right? Mm -hmm. So Lauren, I bet your bassinet is similar to, I also moved in the pandemic, which was not great. And ordering a bed took like six months for the bed to come. But even (laughs) the, well, the frame of the bed, obviously, right? And here's the thing, like you, these companies, whether it's like Pottery Barn or Crate and Barrel or whatever, they don't even have like, you can, they don't even have enough on the back end of their system to tell you when the order will come. Mm -hmm. Like it's like two months later, they're like, we estimate this will ship in two months. And then two months later, they're like, we're sorry, there is a delay. Mm -hmm. So they don't even, they can't even tell you like the supply chain is so messed up. And so many people are ordering things and who knows where, like, I don't understand the logistics of all of it, but clearly it's a mess for all of these companies that are transitioning to people buying things online instead of in the store. And now there's like a Suez Canal problem. So like, I think, so, so like, you know, it's, 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 you know, I, I do still feel like, you know, we kind of fell into a little bit of this problem by not using the mail as much. And so that changed things, but then the pandemic really changed things. Well, and I think the thing it made me realize about my own situation is that like, oh, turns out a coping strategy when things are stressful is to like order something nice for myself. But like, I mean, I have become like the queen of Instagram buying. It's you know, oh my God. <laughs> I'm just saying I need more immediate gratification when I stress buy things. And if I have to wait for two extra weeks, it doesn't really solve the problem. <laughs> I, I, I understand that so deeply. So, Lauren, one story you brought to us this week is a New York Times article with the headline, She Wants to Kill the Girl Boss. Can you set this one up for us? I I absolutely can. Basically, what happened was there's this woman, Ashley Sumner. She's the CEO and founder of Quilt, which is an audio platform about self-care, which was news to me. Mm -hmm. Very excited (laughs) to learn about it. Um, And she just, like, decided to post this kind of meme that she made. It's, like, a very striking, beautiful photo of her. And it says, I am a female founder. But then she crossed out female. And then she wrote, I am a founder by putting my gender in front of what I am, belittles what I've accomplished, and reminds women how few of us get to where I am. I'm ready to drop the gender and get right to the work I'm doing. Wink emoji, who is with me? And then there's like 20,000 comments Yes, is why it made the New York times. But I think it also made the New York times because a lot of the comments were quite split where it's like, isn't it impressive that you had to be like, you know, you are a woman in the world, you were mansplained and like, you know, thrown obstacles all the way to becoming a founder, you know, shouldn't you be honored for that? And also like, I am the kind of woman who like loves to identify as a female is very femme. Like it's very, I love that part of myself, but I also Mm -hmm. completely agree with like, to our earlier point, you know, we shouldn't say female athletes, athletes is also, so it's like a very interesting split. And, and they also talked to the New York times about how most of the comments were like pretty civil. That to me, Lauren was like the most interesting thing. I mean, I appreciate the conversation. I appreciate that we're having this conversation, Mm -hmm. But I feel like the, what the New York Times should have led with was there was a civil, rational conversation <laughs> about identity on the Internet. About women. I mean, civil, yes, that is very I'm like totally with you on that. But, you know, when you scroll the comments like cringy also, there's mm-hmm. like a lot of like, you know, like middle aged white men who are like, yeah, I disagree with this because you should be proud of being a woman. And I was like, right, oh, no, no, right. sir, I don't I don't want you in here. You know, I just so so, so like. It is a very, but it's a fascinating conversation that I feel like very conflicted about as a woman, certainly not a CEO or boss, but that like, you know, when I was coming up as a city hall reporter, 
it was notable that I was a very young woman mm-hmm. in a very male dominated beat. And I was happy to own that. But I also like never wanted it to be taking away or emphasizing the difference so significantly that like, we're never going to move on from that. You know what I mean? So I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think it speaks to the question that Ashley, the CEO, said she was thinking about before she made the meme, which is, you know, when are these labels successful in supporting and celebrating our differences? And when are they just othering us? Mm. I just think there's so many layers to identity. There are, Yeah. Yes. There is gender. There is color. There mm-hmm. is class. Were you born in this country? Were your parents born in this country? That Mm -hmm. affects so many things about the way that you, how you come to this. And so I always, I think I will say like as a woman of color, I feel like you're constantly switching out identities of what Mm -hmm. identity fits for that situation. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's a very interesting thing. I think it's great to have the conversation about what this is and what this means. And I do think it's a sign that society is moving in the right direction. Like one day, perhaps we will get to a point where people are not judged by who they are, maybe. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, that would be great. (laughs) But I also think, right, like I do think it's sort of like there's just so many layers to all of this. And I appreciate that we're having a conversation of people understanding that. And maybe that's the best part of this, right? Like that there's more visibility, which is always the problem. Invisibility is always the issue in my mind. Well, and it does seem like it does not seem unreasonable that until we get to a point where nobody sees these differences in a damaging way that we do emphasize our identities when we also make achievements to prove that we're able to make those achievements because of our identities, you know? Yeah. It's it's a very difficult thing to identify. And I am with Nyla that I'm very happy that the conversation was being had. Absolutely. And the fact that it didn't just devolve into name calling, too, is like, wow, like, OK, LinkedIn. Plus one, America. <laughs> Maybe we should be hanging out there more. So, Nyla, do you hang out on LinkedIn? I do not hang out on LinkedIn. This makes me want to. I right. have to say, I always think LinkedIn seems very like it's like our best work selves. Like it's very sanitized. Mm. It's very professional. I think for my minimal toe dipping into LinkedIn, I don't think, but I am fascinated that it's civil. And I think that that's something like Lauren, to your point, like definitely some cringy statements. Right. But it's interesting to me that like when your reputation is on the line, then maybe people make an effort to be human in their internet interactions. (laughs) What a wild idea that there are consequences to what you actually say on the internet in real life. I mean, true. (laughs) Lauren and Nyla, thank you so much. This really was such a pleasure to talk with you today. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. I loved every minute of it. After the break, wellness writer Virginia Soul Smith unpacks some misconceptions we may have about the BMI. And I make up a German word with Rebecca Schumann. Bleib bei uns. I think that means stay with us. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. 
it has been an interesting time to live in a body in the United States lately. As you know, COVID vaccine distribution varies in a lot of places, but one criteria that has made a lot of people eligible for the vaccine is a BMI that would put them in the obese category. Last week, the New York Times ran a controversial column about weight gain during the pandemic. Essentially, the argument was because obesity has been linked to complications, especially with things like COVID, more Americans should be heading to the home gym instead of to the pantry. And then just this week, Krispy Kreme Donuts announced it would offer a free donut to anyone who's gotten the vaccine every single day for the rest of 2021. And there were a lot of critics on Twitter claiming that this was actually bad for public health because it would contribute to obesity. So there's a lot of interesting elements of this to unpack. And here to give us some context about all of it is Virginia Soul Smith. She is a journalist who writes about women, food and wellness. She's also the author of The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image and Guilt in America. And she is with us now. Hi, Virginia. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you. There's just like... There's so much to this one, as I'm sure I don't even have to tell you. You're like, yeah, I know. I literally wrote a book about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, there is a lot going on right now. Um, There's this sort of ongoing belief in our culture that weight should be something you have total control over. And if you don't have control over it, it's a failure of your willpower and morality and all of this, which we know is completely false and not how body size works. Um, And yet, because that myth is so prevalent, then when anything's going wrong, people are like, well, you know, look at how you're eating. Look at how active you are. Try to control these things. Yeah. So can you explain for people who maybe haven't heard the term BMI since they were like in high school? Can you explain what it is? Sure. So BMI stands for body mass index, and it is a formula that is calculated um, with your weight and height. And this whole concept of the BMI, it dates back to the 1800s. A Flemish astronomer developed it. So um, (laughs) definitely a modern health expert. Um, Super valid. Got it. Got it. Yep. He was a statistician, an astronomer, um, mathematician kind of guy. And he was plotting the size of, quote, the average man in Belgium in 1832. (laughs) It just gets better and better. So that's what this formula is based on. I mean, it's been tweaked a bit over the years, but no, it has not changed dramatically since then. Um, and it's never, it was never intended to measure health. It was never intended to be used as like a diagnostic tool to decide whether someone's healthy or not. Um, you know, there's lots of problems with the formula so that folks who are, you know, like pro basketball players are usually in the quote obese category, Um, Mm -hmm. lots of pro athletes. Um, It doesn't take muscle mass into account. Um, You know, it doesn't take pregnancy status into account. You know, there's all these different reasons that it's not very useful. But the bigger problem is just that it really hammers home this idea that weight equals health, which we know is not true. Mm -hmm. And then that, you know, opens up this whole pathway for the way we treat folks in bigger bodies. Yeah, it w- it's been really interesting because over the last couple of weeks, I've heard from several friends who have qualified for the vaccine because of their BMIs. And pretty much every single one of them said something along the lines of like, this is the only time my BMI has ever actually helped me in terms of feeling better about myself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so here's what's really going on with that. You know, they're putting the BMI as a qualifying criteria 
because they're looking at this research that says that people with high BMIs are more likely to have severe cases of COVID mm-hmm. starting in April of last year. CDC released a report showing that 48% of patients hospitalized with COVID-19 had a BMI in the obese range compared to 42% of Americans as a whole. So that's kind of where this all started. But none of this research proved a causal link between the high body weight and the way their COVID went. Hmm. They don't, we don't know that the high body weight caused the need for the ventilator or caused the more severe problems. At best, what we have here is a correlating relationship. And this is what you see in almost all the research on weight and health. We think that weight causes the health problem. It may just be a correlating symptom, something else that is also happening. And there are other things at play that are the root causes. In the case of COVID, you know, we know that folks in black and brown bodies also have higher rates of these complications. And if you layer in BMI and race, you see the rates really spike. We're not saying like people need to change their race to fight COVID. (laughs) We're saying that this shows this institutionalized discrimination that exists in our healthcare system and in our larger society that is making these communities more vulnerable. And we think there's something similar happening with weight here. Yeah. So back in January, you wrote an article for The New York Times about how the pandemic might be contributing to a rise in children's body weight and how parents should be responding to that. Can you talk about it a little bit? Because I think it's pretty good information for anybody who has noticed that their body has changed over the past year. Yeah. I mean, there were so many parents, you know, touching base with me on social media. This was the kind of conversation I was hearing over and over again, particularly of parents of teenagers who maybe in the past they were playing team sports and those have been canceled. They're, you know, the teenagers are just really having such a rough time of it. They're stuck at home, which Mm -hmm. no teenager wants to do. So there's, you know, really high rates of anxiety and depression. And when you're dealing with really tough stuff, like you can't see any of your peers and, you know, you're feeling very anxious and depressed, it is normal to use food as a coping strategy. And yes, the combination of coping with food and changes to your other routine may result in body changes. But what we have to step back and say is, okay, is the changing body the problem or is the fact that you're doing school in your bedroom and you haven't (laughs) seen another teenager in six months the problem? Like, that's what's really tragic for these kids. The fact that their gene size is different is just a symptom. It's just a Mm -hmm. piece of this puzzle. And so if as parents, we respond to this by saying, oh my gosh, we're getting rid of all the junk food and we're putting you on a diet and we're, you know, you need Weight Watchers, you need to do all these things. We haven't addressed the depression, the anxiety, the isolation, the loneliness that this kid is actually dealing with. All we've done is say, hey, you're miserable right now. You should be more miserable because your body's wrong. Like that is a really dangerous message to give kids. Yeah. So where do you think that impulse comes from to to create that negative message or to just look at one symptom instead of like looking at our bodies and our lives more holistically? I mean, it's so many places. It's definitely the way weight and health get talked about in the media, on social media, you know, in sort of casual conversations. The willpower myth is really persistent, even though, again, it's been debunked over and over again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of what's hard is 
if you do go on a diet, you probably will see some short-term weight loss, right? Like you probably will drop a few pounds for a short period of time, and that might feel really good, and that will certainly get really reinforced by people around you. But you know what we know is that between 85 and 95% of people who pursue weight loss through diet do not keep off the weight. They regain the weight, and then they regain more weight within two to five years because our bodies are biologically wired to fight famine and fight starvation. And so your body triggers all of these biological processes. Your metabolism slows down, your appetite increases, you think about food constantly. So then you get caught in this endless cycle. Yeah. So I think maybe as sort of our final note, I wonder if there is something like advice that you would give to someone who maybe is feeling shame because their body has changed over the past year. Yeah, you know, this is so hard because even those of us who write about this, think about this a lot, like being able to intellectually say, I understand that weight stigma exists and I understand that I shouldn't have to lose weight and I shouldn't have to change my body size to please other people. Mm -hmm. You can know that intellectually and emotionally. It's like a whole separate journey. Right, right. If you're struggling with your body right now, you are for sure not alone. I think that's fairly universal. And I also think like that is not your fault. It's because you live in this culture that tells you this narrative over and over again. You've heard it since you were a kid. You've probably heard it from people you really trust, like your parents or your doctor or your you know spouse. And it's really hard to separate out from that and say, no, I'm not going to care about that. I think, you know, another thing is that, like, your body, you, like, you survived a fucking pandemic. Yes. You yes, know? Like, let's yes. celebrate the fact that, like, sure, your body, but your body, like, probably should look different. Just given the fact that, like, we have all undergone such insane societal trauma over the past 12 months. Yeah. It's really, if you think about it, the fucked up part is thinking you can get through a pandemic and still have a six pack or whatever. <laughs> like still know? be exactly the same. Like we're all different in so many ways. And okay, now someone's going to feel bad because they didn't gain weight. <laughs> You're okay too. <laughs> it's fine. It's just that like, we're all going to wear the scars of this in various ways for a long time. And for a lot of us, the scar may be in the form of some weight gain, and that is not a bad thing. And it's not something you need to change. Virginia, thank you so much for, for talking about this. I think it's a really important conversation to have, and I appreciate you. Thank you so much. This was great. Past year, we have had a lot of new and weird experiences. Some of them are really hard to pinpoint in just one word, but it is not so if you are German. The German language has added more than a thousand new words since the pandemic hit. And here to tell us about some of them is Rebecca Schumann. She's an adjunct professor of German at Vassar and the author of Schadenfreude, a love story. Rebecca, hello. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. So you wrote an article for Slate recently called, uh-oh, I'm going to try and pronounce these, Hamsterkauf, Zeit. There's a German word for your pandemic experience. Can you tell us about some of your favorite new words? Well, one of my absolute favorites is, I uh, like I like words for objects, and this mm -hmm. is a word 
for the uh, fiberglass shield that goes between... Spookschutztrenschiebe? Spookschutztrenschiebe. Oh, you said it better. Yeah. So that literally means spittle protection separation pain. Ah, it's so good. Well, and another one that you talk about that came up in last week's episode of Nerdette is the idea of vaccine envy. Correct. Impfnade. Yeah, impfnade. And so that's a, yes, that's a very curt one for the Germans. Yeah, impfen is their word for to be vaccinated, which I kind of love that. It's this short little word that's sort of the sound of a needle going in almost. Oh, wow. I mean, I don't think that's that's why it's called that, but I love how onomatopoetic it is. And then, yeah, nide is just envy, jealousy. (laughs) So why do you think these compound words, like, it seems like they are much more common in German than English. That's true. Why, Just why is that? Well, Germans are obsessed with precision. They want to be precise. That's why they're so angry when people do things that aren't a hundred percent correct. And that's why our senses of humor as Americans that rely on hyperbole, for example, or sarcasm, they don't hit because, mm. you know, you'll say something that's wildly exaggerated to try to make a joke and they'll just be like, that's not true. What do you mean you've read a book a thousand? How long did it take you to read a book a thousand times? And so this demand for precision means that their appliances are very good. Their cars are usually pretty great. And also their words are extraordinarily precise. And their mm-hmm. language has the ability to express things that are so precise that you might just use a word, like make up a word, use it once and literally just have it disappear into the ephemera never needing it again. Okay, so the whole idea is that there's a German word for pretty much everything. Correct. So I want to put that to the test a little bit because I have had this experience a couple times lately, most recently with a book called The Great Circle. Essentially what happens is I'm reading a piece of fiction and it's so good that I want to see the thing or hear the thing that is being described for myself. So with Great Circle, part of it is there's this character who's an artist. He makes these kind of mind-bending paintings that play with perspective in a really interesting way. And I was so close to Googling them and then had to be like, no, Greta, they don't actually exist. Is there a German word for when you're reading a book that's so good that you want to Google all the stuff that's in it, but then you realize you have to remind yourself that it's just a really good novel? Um, I mean, you could make one up. (laughs) Will you help me make one up right now? So, yeah, what do you want to, what are the feelings that you want to isolate? I mean, I feel like it's sort of like a, it it kind of feels to me like a nostalgia type thing, right? Because it's like yearning for a thing that doesn't really exist, but because it's so great. Yes. Okay. So the main word that you want to use here is longing. So that's the one that's going to end it. That's your anchor. And that is Zainzucht. Zainzucht. Which literally means that you are searching to see something that you are never going to see. Oh, so, perfect. So that would be the end of it. So what about just like book longing or something? It would be like... Or like good story or like, I don't mythology longing or something. Yeah, it would be like... Art in book paint longing? It would be Fantasiekunst Zainzucht, right? <laughs> Yeah, that would that would be your longing for art that exists only in a fantasy. Oh, ooh, that's so beautiful. Will you say it one more time? Yeah, I mean, I just made it up. So you yeah, may yeah, get yeah. Right. calls from Germans who are like, that is not right. And that's not how we would do it. And this American <laughs> who loves the German so much needs to be punished. Fantasiekunst Sehnsucht. Fantasiekunst Sehnsucht. Yeah. Becca, 
Thank you so much. This was really fun. Thank you so much for having me. It's everything. Before we sign off today, we want to take a second just to remember the legacy of Jessica Walter. She's a comedy icon who passed away this week. She will be remembered for many incredible roles, I'm sure. But in my heart, she will always be Lucille Bluth from Arrested Development. Don't get me wrong. She was definitely kind of a terrible person, but I just love her a lot. If that's a veiled criticism about me, I won't hear it and I won't respond to it. About 10 years ago, I threw an Arrested Development themed costume party and you better bet I put on a dress and some pearls and drank a lot and was mean to everyone and I had a great time because Lucille Bluth is the best. Rest in peace, Jessica Walter. All right, that's it for today. The show is produced by me and Isabel Carter. Our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. And hey, keep an eye out for our book club discussion of Piranesi next week. The panelists are amazing. That's coming out on Tuesday. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.